0: from the Centre for European Reform. You're listening to an audio recording from a recent CR event. If for some reason you couldn't be there, you can catch up now.
1: Enjoy! Hello everybody, I'm Charles Grant for those who don't know me. Welcome to this joint Friedrich Ebert Stiftung Centre for European Reform event on Europe's Climate Challenge. I'd like to thank our friends at the FES for helping us put this conference together. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Sophia Besh, for also playing a big role in getting us all together today. Um, Some of you were aware of a guy called Stephen Tyndale, who used to work at the CER, who died in very tragic circumstances a couple of years ago, but we're still inspired by his memory to go on working on climate issues, and we will continue to honour his memory by doing so. Uh, The timing of this event is, of course, very important uh, and very, very relevant. I think we all agree it's a great pleasure to talk about something other than Brexit for a few days, and over the Easter weekend, the fact that the headlines were not about Brexit. It was actually a great relief to us all. But there is, of course, a little bit of a link between Brexit and climate, because it is, isn't it strange that almost all the people who take a view that there should be very hard Brexit are almost all climate change deniers, with one or two exceptions. Those two sets of people overlap surprisingly, uh, surprisingly closely. One of the ironies of Brexit is that it gives Britain the freedom to develop its own foreign policy unshackled by the broader European foreign policy, and yet on most of the key international issues, even a, a right-wing, fairly Eurosceptic Tory government is choosing to align with Europe rather than the US, on Iran, on World Trade Organization, on support for the UN and multilateral organizations, but also in particular on climate issues. We remain very closely lined up with the EU, not the EU, US. Another irony, is that China, though it doesn't respect our liberal democratic values in any way as far as I can see, does actually agree with the EU about climate issues and World Trade Organization issues and the importance of a rules-based global governance. One of the interesting questions for the future, I think, is to what extent can China really support a rules-based global governance internationally while not respecting the rule of law at home? Finally, I think we inevitably climate change. Brexit does mean that British influence on EU policy making on climate and other energy issues will diminish. That's inevitable. But I'm not entirely pessimistic, even outside the EU, not at the top table. The British can still, I think, have some influence on what happens because of the ideas, the expertise, the interesting companies doing interesting things, the NGOs doing very valuable work. The capital markets that specialize in green issues, Britain has has such expertise that I don't think it will be without influence in the future, even if Brexit happens, as I fear it probably will. That's enough from me. I'd like to hand over to our partner Nicole to say a couple of words and then we'll get the first panel going. Nicole.
2: On behalf of the Ebert Foundation, I would like to welcome you to our conference on Europe's climate change challenge. Let me start by thanking the Center of European Reform and especially Sophia Besch for cooperating with us on this issue. For us, actions on climate change carry significant importance. Our foundation is a German think tank which is deeply connected to the social democratic party and values. And in the last federal elections in September 2017, the SPD reached a very low point with barely 20% of the votes. And currently, the latest polls put the SPD between 15 and 16% of popular support. That means that the popularity of the party has decreased enormously. And one of the reasons for this is, in my opinion, a lack of clarity and courage of the party, especially in environmental issues. In comparison, the Green Party, well known for their environmental protection program, and save the climate ambition are riding on a wave of success. So as think tank for SPD party, we need to discuss how to better combine progressive social policies with a clear-cut environmental and climate protection policy. My second point is concerning, concerning climate change, we should avoid what I would call brexification. And now I said the B word, but I promise it will be the only time. A thundering decisions, lots of talks and negotiations, but nothing changes, no political solutions are in sight. We need to act. The developments since 1972, when the Club of Rome published its first report, The Limits of Growth, show that it is very important to listen to the climate experts and to draw the right conclusions. There is no second earth. We only have this one and we want to preserve it for the future generations. Fortunately, we saw the extinction rebellions protests in London last week. UK citizens were indignant over the lack of political effort being made to curtail global warming. They caused disruption on many central places and streets in London and wanted to raise awareness of the ecological crisis. These protests show us that there is growing support in the UK and other countries for a Green New Deal. This week, the government's climate change committee publishes its report on how and when Britain can achieve a zero emission society and play a proper part in the battle against global warming. So it is the best time to discuss Europe's climate change challenge in London. I wish everybody a fruitful debate, and I hope you will enjoy our conference. Thank you very much.
0: Hello, and good morning from me also. Um, Thank you very much all for coming. I look forward to our day of discussions. I think that should be really, really interesting. Our first panel is on Europe and global climate leadership, and I think – There are two themes sort of running through this panel. The first one is that of Europe as a leader in international climate diplomacy. Um, European diplomacy obviously helped bring about the landmark Paris Agreement in 2015, and I would argue it has become all the more important since the United States' decision to formally withdraw from the Paris Climate Deal. And one question I think that we might want to answer today is who will be the most important drivers of global initiatives to tackle climate change in the future? There has been some signaling from China, as Charles Grant has just said, that it intends to become a leader in combating climate change. There have also been reports in recent weeks that Russia is considering finally ratifying the Paris Climate Agreement, though we might want to talk about what the motivations are behind this ratification. At the same time, there are questions over the reliability of these actors and their motivations when it comes to really tackling global warming. And there are rifts between developing countries and European countries over who should pick up the bill of the measures to fight climate change. And I think the second question that we want to address in this panel today is how far Europe can really serve as an exemplary power when it comes to climate leadership because if the EU wants to be a climate leader, it is essential, I think, for European countries and the EU to get their own houses in order first. And Europeans are at our most powerful, I would argue, if we can lead by example and show that economic growth on the one hand and emissions reduction on the other hand are not mutually exclusive. But the EU's climate targets have been deemed insufficient to actually reach the UN goal of limiting global warming to well below uh, two degrees Celsius. And there are questions over how far the EU is actually willing to go to make its heavy industries greener and take on the fossil fuel-based economy. Brexit, of course, is another factor that could weaken the EU stance and potentially slow down market liberalization. So I think we have an excellent panel uh, in this morning to address the questions of Europe's global climate leadership. We have to my very right Alina Bardram, who is the head of the International Relations Unit at the European Commission's Director General for Climate Action. And we have Clive Lewis, who is a Labour MP for Norwich South, Shadow Minister for the Treasury, and also the Vice Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Climate Change Group. Thank you very much for coming. I think we'll hear introductory statements from all speakers and then go into a discussion with the audience. Uh, Alina, why don't you kick us off?
3: Thanks very much, Sofia, and uh, good morning to you all. Uh, Indeed, as as was said by the the keynotes, this is a very pertinent moment to be talking about climate. We see, uh, you know, the youth movement all around Europe. We see the protesters in the Extinction Rebellion, and uh, the public debate around the European election is really picking up around the theme of climate and low emissions transition. Um, I thought I'd t- talk uh, in my kind of opening remarks a little bit about the uh, three dimensions of, of uh, Europe and Europe's role. Uh, one is uh, how how we perceive the Paris Agreement. What is the value added of this new arrangement? The second is about the implementation ambition and uh, how we can drive uh, that agenda, and, and thirdly, a little bit about the partnerships, the global role that the EU has. Now, to start off with, I think one of the, the key um, achievements of, of the Paris Agreement is that it, we were able to agree. It. The fa- very sheer fact that in the era of a uh, lot of headwind to multilateralism, the, the kind of rules-based order being questioned, uh, the global community came together at leaders' level to, to carve together an ambitious package that would change the direction of travel at a global level. The long-term goals that are enshrined in the Paris Agreement, notably to stay within the 2 degrees threshold and to pursue efforts to, to remain even lower, below uh, within the 1.5 degrees, are highly ambitious, and and indeed, uh, to some, they seem unrealistic. The other element of the Paris Agreement was that it was an honest agreement. Uh, Although we had universal participation, the Paris Agreement also recognized that with all the targets, with all the nationally determined contributions aggregated, summed up together, we were nowhere close to to the two degrees, let alone the 1.5 degrees. In fact, The globe, the course was set for for, uh, somewhere between 2.7 and 3.4 degrees. And clearly, those uh, levels would be much beyond what uh, humanity or the ecosystems can withstand. So, with that knowledge, uh, we also were able to uh, enshrine in the deal a, a, a notion of progression over time so that the parties to the agreement will come back together on five-year intervals look at the latest science look at the technologies that have advanced and consider what more they can be doing and in fact now that we are four years from paris uh, the next critical moment will be in 2020 which is the deadline whereby uh, countries are expected to communicate and update their targets and they are expected to come forward with robust and credible long-term strategies, and that applies to all parties. Um, The the Paris Agreement also had lots of provisions for global solidarity, financing matters, uh, adaptation, technology transfer, so that it's really a platform to to, uh, promote inclusive uh, transition at a global level and uh, the the element of inclusiveness that was very new to Paris Agreement was the inclusion of civil society, inclusion of the non-state actors, if you like. So businesses, uh, different uh, NGO communities, churches, uh, cities, local governments were given a, a place and a voice in the international process. And they have become an essential vanguard in taking this agenda forward. Now, Paris Agreement, of course, it's about rules, transparency, predictability. But what it is not about, it's not about delivering national policies and measures. That has to happen in the countries themselves. And that is the the current challenge, the implementation challenge that we face. So we, we have now transitioned with the rule rulebook, which is the, the kind of conclusive set of rules by and large, with the exception of market-based mechanisms and some other technical elements. We, we have removed any notion of, of delaying, but there be an excuse to delay action. Now it is for the countries to come and put forward mechanisms that provide the enabling environment to the investors, to the citizens, to the businesses that um, provide the right signals to to accelerate the transition at the pace required. And uh, that's what the EU is currently also doing. We've put forward the Commission's uh, long-term strategy document, and currently there is a, a debate ongoing, which involves not just the climate community, but also the industry, Uh, It involves uh, agriculture community, transport community, because what we are really talking about at EU level and global level is is a pretty radical overhaul of the economic system and the industrial model that we have uh, grown used to. It will happen at global level because, you know, renewables are, are becoming much more cost effective, uh, that the, there is an imperative need to clean up uh, the, the communities and nations because it's, it's starting to have health consequences, productivity consequences. But it is the pace at which this transition will happen which uh, makes it so important for us to come forward with policies and measures. The EU has been implementing its 2020 framework which is a, a reduction target of 20% by uh, 2020 from 1990 levels we are currently at minus 22 and we're not at 2020 yet and while we have been reducing our emissions our economy has actually grown in terms of gdp by some 50 percent so the decoupling of economy and emissions can be done and that is something that we also want to uh, pass to our international partners we can talk more about the different policies and measures we have in place, the sustainable finance action plan, the the energy efficiency regulations, building standards, uh, cars, and we just recently agreed the vans. And we have now started, or we've now actually finalized the whole package of regulations and, and legislation that will deliver our 2030 target, which is the commitment that the EU and its member states took under the Paris Agreement, to reduce our emissions by 40% at least by 2030. And uh, we're pretty confident that we will get there. Of course, it's not enough, because if we continue with that target until uh, 2050, with those policies and measures that are now in the package, the 2030 package, we'll be somewhere at minus 60 whereas we really should be upping our efforts and aspire to get to, to um, that net zero. And that is, that is the difficult but very important debate that's currently taking place at EU level. So EU can, li- our role globally, we can lead by example. We need to enhance our policy dialogue, share our tools and experiences with our partners. We're very much focusing on the G20 economies, on that type of upstream engagement. Then we have a whole host of middle powers that still benefit to some extent from from cooperation instruments. Our financing, uh, you know, and European Investment Bank, what are we doing? How how do we make our financial flows consistent with the, the Paris 21C article, which is basically about making all finance flows globally consistent with the Paris Agreement goals? And that clearly means no more coal financing, no more uh, fossil fuel subsidies, and, and these are tall orders for, for, for the global community. But they are, they are real, actual uh, actions that need to take place if we are serious about transitioning to, to the low-emissions economy that we would need to be So, uh, and then there are, of course, the vulnerables, the real vulnerables, and here I'm talking about the least developed countries, those countries that suffer the most are in the front lines of the negative consequences of climate change but have the least means to deal with it. And there, the solidarity aspects must kick in. Uh, Clearly, ODA, official development assistance) type of financing, is never going to be able to solve that the transition investment challenge, but it can be a very critical factor in assisting the vulnerable countries in dealing with with the consequences, and also to to help them channel investment, catalyze investment uh, that is consistent with not uh, pursuing a carbon blocking. There's a whole host of uh, different things that we can talk about, but I'd like to keep it at
0: that for now, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, for So just the time you get for your introductory remarks, we can get into all of the questions you've raised during the Q&A. Uh, over to you, Clive Lewis. Yeah, thank you. Is climate you change much. a partisan issue, and what role can the UK play in Europe? Going is climate forward?
4: change a partisan issue? Um, the, the situation in the UK is, is slightly different to the US, um, in the sense that there is uh, an acknowledgement. We don't have uh, high-profile climate deniers in government. Um, that's a... Bonus, I suppose. Um, But unfortunately, we're getting to a point now um, where we need to do everything everywhere yesterday. And it also means, as well, at the same time, that we're going to need to do things that we haven't, up until this point, been able to do because of various constraints to what I would call economic orthodoxy and what is possible and what isn't. So if you're hooked on a fossil fuel neoliberal economic model, then you're gonna have problems adapting to the rapid changes required to our economy, um, and that means that that will become partisan. Do I think, listening to Claire Perry yesterday, that her government gets the scale of the crisis? Well, first of all, they're not even admitting that there's a climate crisis. That's the first thing, they're in denial about that, which isn't a good thing. If your house is on fire, a good idea is to be concerned about it and start making plans to get out or to put it out. And if you're not even going to do that, then the likelihood is that you're going to burn down inside your own home. I don't want to burn down inside my own home. And I think Greta Thunberg and the climate activists this week have also been saying that they don't want to burn down. Um, Greta yesterday was very impressive. She, if you've heard her speak, um, she's very matter-of-fact. Get straight to the point. And she, one of the quotes that she gave yesterday which really hit me was, you lied to us, you gave us hope. And I think, I was thinking to myself, what does she mean? Well, she went on to explain what she meant. And I I knew about this, but it was interesting to hear it come from Greta. And what she said, um, she said, Michael Gove, you're going to tell us about what a success story the UK has been. And in many ways, the UK was the success story with its Climate Change Act. It was ahead of the the curve with Ed Midiband. It was ahead of the curve in terms of binding legislation on a government um, far ahead of anyone else on the planet. But the science has changed and we've been caught basically with our pants down in this country, from being a world and global leader to now going behind on that curve. And what she means is that if you include shipping, aviation, and imports, because let's not forget the last 40 years has seen across Europe a massive outsourcing of jobs and and productive manufacturing capabilities to the developing world. If you include those three things, then our 37% carbon footprint reduction becomes a 10% reduction since 1990. In annual terms, that's a 0.4% annual reduction. Now, the science is telling us, from the IPCC science, is telling us that we need a 50% reduction in the next 10 to 12 years. Annually, that's 15%, not 0.4%, 15%, and we have to start that now. So you begin to see the scale of the challenge, and you can also see why Greta and the others have said that we've given them hope, but actually we've lied to them. And I think for many politicians, that is really a wake-up call. So I was asked to speak a little bit about Brexit and what that will mean in a post-Brexit world for uh, the fight against climate change. We'll just be quite clear. I think Brexit will be a disaster for that. There's no two ways about it. Of course, the world will go on. We will have to adapt and manage if it does take place. Personally, I think, having lost the initiative on this. I think the government are on the back foot. I think the the Brexit project is on the back foot. I hope it can be defeated. I think it will be defeated. I don't want to be held to that, don't quote me, but I think it's possible. Um, But the reason Brexit will be a disaster, you have to understand the motivations of those behind the Brexit project. Um, It's about tax reductions, deregulation, reducing environmental and workers rights. When the whole idea Of this so-called green new deal which we're here to talk about in part today is about not just the environment but a whole new deal in terms of reducing inequality access to public housing public health public transport it's a completely new framework of approaching the economy now that's going to be a challenge for some politicians and some political parties and some elements within the european union but that's what's at stake so what would an eu transatlantic Green New Deal look like? Well, the first thing is, it has to be an international Green New Deal. You can't remain in your silos. It has to be international, yeah, because the, very, the whole concept of climate change is that this is actually happening now, disproportionately uh, to the developing world, but it's happening here and now. We already know we've got the 10-year time frame, so it has to be international. And the other reason it has to be international is because we understand that if we're going to be able to tackle this, it's going to need international solutions. So that will mean basically a new international framework. When you looked at the original New Deal, the the New Deal Democrats, as they were called, when they developed that New Deal, one of the things that happened in the post-war period was that we had the Marshall Plan and then with people like Maynard Keynes, we set up um, the uh, Bretton Woods system and the International Monetary Organization, which lasted for a good number of years and, and in many ways provided the modern welfare state that much of Europe and America enjoyed up until the 1980s. What we now need is an international framework for the Green New Deal to make sure that we can raise the six to eight trillion dollars a year that we need to decarbonize our economies. But this is the other thing I wanted to say. It's, I, I, I've been talking to people about cost curves and about the, the economic implications of being able to uh, be able to hit our climate change targets. There has been over the last five to ten years across Europe a policy of austerity, of basically understanding that we will forego investment in our economies today and public spending to try to reduce the deficit. I think it's a false choice and I think climate change is increasingly making it a redundant choice because if we accept the existential threat that climate change uh, means to future generations and to people now in a developing world, then they have a choice. If you go to someone in 30 or 40 years time from the next generation and say, what would you prefer? Ecological and climate destruction or debt? Who thinks that they would ask for climate and ecological destruction? Who thinks that they would prefer to have debt? I think people would prefer to have debt. Um, And I think that is something that we are going to have to cross. A bridge that we as politicians are going to have to work towards. Yes, we can raise bonds uh, on a Green New Deal. I think that's a role for the European Central Bank, for uh, sovereign national state uh, central banks. We're going to have to raise vast amounts of money, I've already said the figure, and we're going to have to accept that if we want to be able to turn around the climate catastrophe that is happening, if we want to invest the patient finance in new technologies, then we're going to have to borrow to invest in our children's future it's as simple as that and the idea of austerity of there being limits on what we can do and what we can spend i think are also going to have to go out the window and i'll conclude on this when um, robert kennedy president kennedy said that the united states wanted to go to the moon he didn't say to nasa he didn't say to his country but i want to do it within this budget he set a time scale because there is no Second, there is no medal for second place. they were in a, a Cold War with the Soviet Union, and it was a race to the moon. You didn't get a medal for second place, which meant you had to be first, which meant that the constraint was time, not money. And they got to the moon. And this is now the challenge for us. Well, there is a time constraint. If we miss the window in 11 years' time, then we are making it even more difficult and even more likely that there will be terrible disruption to our democracies and to our planet. So we have a time scale that we have to fit within and that means that that is the priority. The financial side is secondary. Of course there still need to be fiscal rules but they need to be relaxed and they need to be put and harnessed to making sure that those new technologies, some of which we will not uh, actually know where they will end up, some of them will fail as Greta said yesterday, what we need to start doing now is digging the foundations of a cathedral. The generation that starts digging those foundations does not know what the roof of that cathedral will look like, but they build the foundations knowing that the cathedral will exist. And that's what we have to start doing now. I'm sorry if they're a bit scant on detail, and we can go into that in the questions, but I just wanted to set what I think are the challenges facing us in the coming years, both as politicians, businesses, and members that are interested in making sure that the human race survives into the 22nd century.
0: Great, thank you very much. I think you certainly managed to convey the sense of urgency um, that, we're, that we're all feeling, I think, who are in this room today. And then, if I may, I'm going to ask a couple myself. Um, maybe we'll, we'll start with you, Alina. Could you just talk a little bit about how you see the relationship with Russia and China um, and the EU and Europe going forward? How much, is, um, how much should we take Chinese ambition seriously to be a global leader on climate change? How much is this perhaps the one area of cooperation between the EU and China? And then if you could also comment just briefly on what we should think of Russia wanting to ratify the Paris Climate Accord.
3: Okay, very good. Um, let's start with uh, EU and China. Uh, of course, it is a, a complex relationship, not just between EU and China, but China and the rest of the world. Uh, you know that there are some troubling developments uh, within Chinese borders and, and some uh, challenges to, to the South China Sea, which, which you know uh, peg a question about: okay, what, what are the real intentions here? At the same time, as you rightly pointed out, China has been a, a pivotal partner in, in both securing the Paris Agreement and upholding the, the international participation in a context where uh, one of our key partners, you know, the Obama administration, is nowhere to be found. So, so we, we need to be Uh, decisive in looking for strategic alliances that drive the the kind of uh, climate wave despite the very challenging geopolitics that we face today. Um, You may know that uh, Chinese uh, senior representative uh, Xie, that's ministerial rank on, on climate, who was uh, in Paris, he was already there in Lima and and has followed the negotiations as the ministerial representative uh, throughout. Together with my commissioner and Minister McKenna of Canada, uh, established a platform called the Ministerial on Climate Action to substitute for the so-called Major Economies Forum that was uh, a, a platform for ministerial exchanges under the Obama administration. So so we have been able to sustain a a debate outside the negotiations that takes the agenda forward, discusses issues such as implementation, such as key policies, and and we will continue to to, uh, co-convene this uh, MOCA, the ministerial meeting, also this year, ahead of the UN Secretary General Summit, which is a key international moment for, for ambition and climate discussion as well. As what comes to Russia, um, Russia was uh, instrumental for the entry of, into force of the Kyoto Protocol uh, in its day. Um, the fact that they are ready to, to ratify Paris Agreement, uh, I think, should be welcomed. Uh, it, it was always Their ratification was always subject to the rules that were going to be developed and which were agreed in Katowice. So yes, we continue to engage with Russia as with any other partner. But um, you know, of course, the prevailing uh, general political uh, situation, of course, affects our ability to go deeper into bilateral conversations.
0: Uh, question on what is the right format for, for these measures? Because you've talked about the, the Green New Deal, the transatlantic dimension of that, and, the global, b- and yeah. the global dimension of that, but is the UN framework really the most useful going forward? Are bilateral accords better, or is it about partnerships be- between non-state actors?
4: It's, as I said at the beginning, I think it's everything everywhere yesterday, and I, I think in many ways, some of the mechanisms, some of the forum uh, some of the institutions that we need haven't been created yet, and I think If you if we acknowledge that this is an existential threat as the science tells us Then that means that there needs to be a new level of thinking in how we approach this and you know I'm sorry to keep going I seem obsessed by people's houses being on fire But if you've had a domestic the night before your house is on fire and you wake up and your house is on fire I mean you've got a choice you can you can you know, say, well, I'm going to leave my wife in the bed and get out myself. Or you can actually wake her up and help her get out. And I think in many ways, you know, we understand the world is fragmented. But this is an existential threat. And when you understand that the US is only responsible for 15% of global emissions, yes, it's the biggest, it's one, it's the biggest share of any individual country. But it's only 15% of the entire output. You understand that this needs to be a global response. So any issues that you have with Russia or with China, well then, in many ways, you need to kind of say, well, hold on, this is going to affect the, entire, the entirety of our global society and the possibility of having a global civilization anywhere towards the end of this century and into the next. That's a climate emergency. That's what we mean by a climate emergency. So that means, in many ways, we need to be not just talking about international finance, that's 5% of GDP annually, being devoted to this. That will need an international response. We need to see a needs-based application of resources. There are countries which would not be able to afford the transition to decarbonisation. We have to make sure that they have the resources required to do that. And that will mean a net flow from the north to the south. But there are benefits in international cooperation because what it also means, I'm sorry, i am sorry kind of slightly go away from the question you asked, but the other thing is that there are resources that the South has that the North doesn't have. So in the global North, we're blessed with more wind. In the South, with more solar. So we need to, we under, every continent has enough renewable resource to be able to make the transition. But on that continent, there are nation states. Some of them will have much, some of them will have little. We need to begin thinking about pooling that, because if we don't, then countries are going to be forced to go down the route of fossil fuels. And I guess the last thing is the intellectual resources. In Europe, that's a little bit easier, because the scientific community works quite closely together, and we work very closely with Russia, but we're going to have to start working with China and Russia and other countries across the world. And if you want, call it a green Manhattan project. But there are going to be de- technologies that we will need to develop, some of which will come from America, some of which may come from Europe, but we're going to have to pull our understanding and our knowledge together to make sure that we can get ourselves out of this mess. There is a razor-thin opportunity, chance, in all of the possibilities of the multiverse, there is a razor thin chance that we as a global civilization can survive this but we're going to have to put all of our resources together collectively and that means a new way of thinking about how international cooperation works are we up to it well we'll soon find out
0: thank you Uh, we've come to the end of our first panel and thank you please join me in thanking our speakers our next panel will be on the clean energy market